this is Paul. <laughs> Luke and, and Nate and a bunch of others have really wanted me to pay a little bit more attention to this conversation with Nate and Sam and John Verveke and Jordan Daniel Wood. And it's definitely a conversation worth paying more attention to. When I listened to this the first time, Nate grabbed me right out of the gate with how, how he opened this thing. Primarily today, what we would talk about is um, participation. But I had an interesting question I kind of wanted to start with, rather than diving right into the, the, the philosophical question about participation. And, and, it, and Sam's channel name kind of inspired that question. His channel is called Transfigured, and it, and, it's a, and it is a reference to the transfiguration. So what I wanted to ask is, what kind of knowing is involved in the transfiguration? Like if, if we had a video camera at the transfiguration, like what would the video camera have captured? Um, how is it that the disciples know that it's Moses and Elijah that are there? Now, now it's fun watching everyone's face. And of course we don't know what's going through their minds, but mate opens this thing up with the kind of question you might hear at a Christian Reformed classical exam looking to sleuth out liberals. Um, there was in the Netherlands a controversy over Genesis and history where, you know, they have to ask whether, you know, Eve could see the snake's lips moving. Um, now, I don't know if, I don't know really if serpents have lips or not, but you get the point. And, and Nate, who is as sophisticated and uh, well-read as anyone in this little corner, opens up with this and it's like, wow, this is the question we're going to open up with. And it's, on one hand, the, the question for many will sort of appear to be a question that sort of points to the the modernist fundamentalist divide because part of the enlightenment package for many people is that the story rendered in the new testament of jesus transfiguration him being accompanied by moses and elijah this has to be a legend this has to be um, this has to be a story that is made up to communicate symbolically, but no one should imagine that this story um, depicts what would be, let's say, a Galilean fisherman's recollection of a trip up to the mountain with James and John and Jesus. Um, you know, it, it's it would be in some ways similar, but even more dramatic to, let's say, Moses coming down from the mountain and having to wear a veil, wear a veil because his face was shining. I mean, is this just symbolic language? What are we supposed to do with this? And then we have all the different permutations going on today with respect to it. But, you know, Nate's question is very subtle because his question is, what kind of knowing is this? Because there are lots of elements to the story that if you, and, and there are many stories, many this is true of many stories in the Bible, that if you begin to ask deeper questions of it, for example, I was doing men's Bible study last night and we were in um, Genesis 11. And in Genesis 11, there's a, there's a reference. On, and at that time, the Canaanites were still in the land. So I paused the Bible study 
and I said, what does that little phrase mean with respect to the time the book, or at least this, this, this layer of the book was written and shared with its audience? And suddenly all sorts of stimulating and difficult questions and maybe thorny sort of emerged about, well, what, what, what is exactly the history of the book? So let's, let's listen to a little bit more of this because it's fun. They're talking with Jesus. Um, and, 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 and what anyone can open with their thoughts. I'm just, just opening the question. I think Sam I get, should go first since he's, right, got the, okay. he's got the right of title. Yeah. I've got the right of title to Transfigured. Okay, well, I, I titled my YouTube channel Transfigured, and you can see this in like sort of my intro video, is that um, my YouTube channel is trying to see Jesus for who he really is. Right. And I think that that is fundamentally what's happening at the. Uh, of course, who he really is. You've used that word really. And now suddenly, you know, Nate's question about ways of knowing and even ways of expressing, you know, surely you're the son of God. That's one that's used in the in the New Testament, of course. Um, son of man is the term Jesus uses for himself. But really the transfiguration is that there is some, I mean, I, the, the Gospels have a lot of this idea that you could see Jesus and not see Jesus, right? Um, you could, you know, lots of people interacted with him, lots of people heard him, lots of people saw him, but not everyone truly saw him. And there's this deeper level of truly seeing that I think, I think the transfiguration is like some sort of weird, it, it, it like, and, and, you know, Sam says truly seeing. Okay, well, what, what, what does that mean? Now, again, we're getting very, very theoretical here in some ways. What does it mean? Uh, we, one might have the sense that to truly see Jesus means that something deep has to change in one's life. And, and part of how we use these words are just sort of on the surface, and we use these words as little tells for each other as to, well, how do we categorize each other? What do we expect from each other in terms of profession and commitment and behavior? But if you say follow the Gospels and read them carefully, we would say that Peter, when it comes to you know Jesus saying, "Well, we're going down to we're going down to Jerusalem," and of course the disciples think that's a bad idea because they're not stupid, and um, Jesus asks, "Well, who do you who do people say that I am?" Well, Elijah or John the Baptist or you know do people people think you're a great prophet. And Jesus says to his disciples, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter has this has this profession of faith. But then in a minute later, Peter will say, no, going down to Jerusalem is a bad idea. I'll never let you be taken into the hands of sinners and crucified. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so then you have the question, was, was Peter truly seeing Jesus? And let's for a moment assume that this transfiguration was an event that Peter could walk down the mountain and say, yeah, we went up there and psh, shined and there Moses and Elijah were there and I said something about building some some building some shelters for us so we can like start up a little uh religious uh, we, we could start up a religious shrine and people can come here and, and and it gets into so much of what we are wrestling with in this little corner in terms of transformations and seeing and knowing. I mean, this is this is in many respects 
what we're what we're really wrestling with zaps the apostles right it's only three of the apostles that are there right it's like peter james and john maybe that are at the transfiguration and it like it it causes them to see in the normal way what they should be seeing in the supernormal way the whole time right and helps them and, and of course supernormal i mean you got to be you got to be really be easy with people in conversations like this because I've been in con plenty of conversations like this and you're doing your best to say the best words you can but what do you mean by supernormal alert to Jesus's deeper than normal identity but I also don't feel like the transfiguration is just straight up teaching that Jesus is God because it's also important that Moses and Elijah are also transfigured at the same time so, so of course, Sam is is our resident non-trinitarian in this little corner, and having Sam here always makes things interesting because sometimes he's siding with one side and sometimes he's siding with the other, and sometimes he's sort of in between, having to explain who he says Jesus really is in ways that um, don't necessarily fall off the tongue from some Nicene um, from some Nicene creed. They have the same glowing appearance that Jesus does. And like Nathan, how how do, how do they know that? And of course, Moses has a glowing a glowing appearance when he comes down from the mountain, and so just just sort of glowing doesn't necessarily make a god or identify one as a god. So, um, good point, Sam. That it's Moses and Elijah. I have no idea. That's a perfectly good question. I don't think they were wearing name tags. Um, but it's just, you know, like, like in a dream, sometimes a character comes in and you just know who it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, in this sort of weird identity sense, but you, you don't have actually the context in your dream to know that. It's just like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I can imagine that the vision that they saw was something like that. But I think, I mean, it's weird. Like, was that some sort of out-of-body vision or was it some sort of weird what you can see in a vision breaking into reality in an abnormal way for the, all three apostles that were beholding at the same time all together. And I think it's something like that, that the, the way that we're supposed to normally try and see Jesus, but we struggle to, zapped into like the reality in a unique and transcendent way at the transfiguration. So that's how I would put it. So <clears throat> one, one way into it from my perspective is, um, Typically, we think of seeing a vision as either imposing a unity on otherwise chaotic phenomena or, right, like a, a, whether that's a Platonic version of that or Aristotelian or Kantian. Okay, now, this, <laughs> once Jordan Daniel Wood opens up his mouth, um, as not unlike many other conversations in this little corner, so a little bit of interpretation is sometimes helpful. Um, so what Jordan basically did was in some ways very quickly bring in sort of the Peugeotian observation about the fact that seeing requires all sorts of elements that are coming together. Um, here's something I can share. Now, now, someone out there, you know who you are. Um, uh, this is someone that I, I've had a fair amount of contact with. 
um, on Twitter and email, and he even had we even had an unposted Randall's conversation, which was quite good, but it was quite personal, and so he he wishes to sort of remain out there. Um, grabs this um, grabs this document from. Greg Henriquez's work, who was obviously a, a close friend of, of John Verveke, um, mapping reality in the four dimensions of behavior according to the theory, his theory of knowledge system. And, and this is, I really like this, um, I, re I really like this diagram because it gets into a lot of the stuff in this little corner that we've been talking about, that when you see a table you see a unity and you experience it at a unity. And this is very much what Peugeot and Verveke and Peterson have been talking about. Um, you see the meaning before you see the object. The object is actually fairly along down the line. Uh, yesterday I made the, the comment about the, about the padlock where you um, you see this as a padlock. Um, you know, if I held it this way and was going to defend myself with a padlock, you might see this as a weapon. But if I put the padlock on the gate at church, then suddenly you see a locked gate. The padlock is a part of the hole in the way that, let's say, the legs of the table are the part of a hole. And, and Greg has sort of nicely... Um, has, he has matter, mind, culture, um, life, all of those sort of moved into the the one picture of the of what we mean when we say a table. So so that that's sort of what Jordan Wood begins to introduce here. Or, or if you're just sort of ironic of seeing a vision as either imposing a unity on otherwise chaotic phenomena, or right, like a, a whether that's a Platonic version of that, or Aristotelian or Kantian, because because the the view that we see before us is always potentially chaotic. In other words, you might experience, let's say, a gun goes off in a room suddenly you experience chaos or a dog is released an illustration i've used before a dog is released in a room unexpectedly and suddenly there's chaos because you're in a space that you didn't expect to see a dog and and suddenly all different particles of the room are salient to you and so that's your vision um and then someone stands up and you know makes a statement to to that says this whole thing was a trick about adopting dogs in Sacramento or something like that, and suddenly the room comes back into order, focus is restored, and now um, all of the focusing and interacting and the knowing and the seeing all sort of comes together, generated by that. By the way, I was just listening to Logos on. Um, <laughs> I, I real I'm I'm really enjoying John's John's new series. I like the pacing. I like the more illustrations. I like him slowing down and talking about these concepts in a, in a much, in a much, um, I think in a much more accessible way. Or, or if you're just sort of a regular realist about it, it's like this thing is objectively there and you just have some kind of unproblematic access to it. It's unified in itself. Right. And what I've always thought about the transfiguration 
uh, both as it's presented in the Gospels, but then also in the history of its interpretation. And for me specifically through the Alexandrian tradition, through Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, and Maximus, each of whom, it's interesting to compare their, their interpretations, which we can get into that if we want. But, but the transfiguration, the sort of knowing is the kind of knowing which doesn't, which actually achieves the unity of the vision itself in the act of seeing. So it's so it isn't it's neither right a sort of more subjective like we already have these categories built in which categorize and coherentize phenomena for us, or it's just there's something like a substantial form and the thing itself related to other substantial forms around it which is already unified out there exterior to us. But and and of course where I want to go, Nate, you won't be surprised is it's it's crucial that the that the the one being seen and the one revealing so that he can be seen as a person and that that person stands at the center of the of the vision and yet is relating to every other aspect of the vision and to the seers themselves all at once it's like this act of unity okay and and right now you can begin to get to get a sense of the craftiness that nate used to open this conversation up in this way because of course there's lots of things that are salient to the people in the room. For Sam, he's salient that he's got two Trinitarians with him, Nate and Jordan. And so there's sort of that aspect of the conversation that Sam Sam is meeting. And if you look at the elements that Sam sort of forefronted, you can see that the self-conscious, um, some of the self-conscious divisions within the room. And, and this, again, is where you begin to get into this whole question of knowing and seeing. Because when... Nate asks a question like this, certain aspects of the question are going to be salient to Sam. To, to many of the viewers here, you know, again, the modernist fundamentalist fight with respect to the revolution of how we understand history, uh, representation, reporting. And so a good number of people will be anxious and in fact even defensive about Anybody who walked up the mountain would see three glowy guys. Now, again, the, the miraculous element that people don't normally glow, not in, not in the light bulb sense of things. Now, one person that we can bring in in that sense is, is C.S. Lewis. And, and when he works on this question of glory in his great sermon, The, the Weight of Glory, and he, and he gets, in fact, into that. And, and you can even go from there into a sense of luminosity that Jordan Peterson was talking about in terms of the burning bush. So there's there's a ton of fun stuff going on right with this introduction of this video. Um, and I think that like, you know, so and we could run the, the question is, what is it unifying? You could might maybe ask that question. And, and the answer is sort of everything. <laughs> if you if you really, if you really get into it, especially in the history of interpretation, because on the one hand, like in the text itself, there's a few interesting things to note exegetically, right? One would be... And, and now part of, you know, part of what's interesting for me is, is of course, I know these three guys and Nate asked the question, so he, he intended to sort of throw this bomb in the room. Sam, of course, is to a degree on the defensive because of, of course, he's got to defend his non-Trinitarian Christian aspects. And and John Verveke is in the room and and, you know, I couldn't... You know, Jordan was going on about these things, and I was just waiting for what on earth is John going to say? It is, it is such a, it is such a clever question, Nate. 
you do have the three uh, the three uh, disciples there. You do have three revealed. Elijah, Moses, Christ at the center. And it's interesting to me that even as this is clearly an elevated or some sense spiritual or super sensible perception, the first thing Peter thinks is physical. Mm. Should we build tents? Right? Should we but you want me to build like it's a very practical reaction to this vision. Which, you know, if you're if you're going to debate the question, which again is salient because of the modernist fundamentalist fight. Did you have three glowing guys up on top of a mountain? And to me, the argument, the the testimony of the text of Peter making this just kind of stupid comment, this physical comment says to me, yeah, this is this is this is what happened. And uh, and and so Peter's Peter's immediate idea, I would imagine, would have been you know, hey, finally we got, finally Jesus is doing something he should have been doing all along. And so we're going to have this shrine and it's going to be bigger than John the Baptist by the Jordan River. And people are going to come and come to, I'm out here and see glowy Jesus and glowy Moses and glowy Elijah and, and have their healings and get their questions answered. And I mean, this is, this in some ways for Peter, given his answer, is probably what he's always been waiting for. And, and in that sense, again, one might imagine if you were to concoct this story in sort of a purely mythological way, uh, Peter would have had something smarter to say or to do. Uh, and so it's almost as if even in that intuition seeing something elevated not only doesn't negate something that you might consider a mundane, trivial, earthbound uh, thought or line of thinking, but in fact prompts it. I don't know how or why, and I'm not sure I can totally, you know, even guess at that. But so you've got this sort of act of unity in the text itself. Let's think about this ground we're standing on, even as we see the one who is being transfigured and the light of glory is shining through. You also have the, the, and this is typically noted, the unity of, you might say, the prophets in Christ or the law and the prophets in Christ, Elijah standing for prophets, uh, Moses' law. And then that the, the, you know, perhaps symbolically presented to us as at the end, when they look back at Christ, it is, yes, it was the three who were glorified. Now it is only one is he who is, who remains. So there's a sort of like relation of unification once again between Christ and law and prophets. And then, so that's, those are in the text, but at least I'll, this is the last point I'll make. If I'm thinking later and all the way to Maximus' say Ambiguum 10, just central, essential text for his treatment of the transfiguration. Um, and you compare that to like origin, whom, you know, by whom he's certainly inspired, there's no question. And origin will do that thing as he does in the commentary in Matthew, where it's like, what does the garments represent of Christ transfigured? Not just who is Christ, not just who's there, not just what is the reaction, but also what what are what are the inner and outer garments which are themselves illuminated by the person wearing them? And what is the body that is illuminated, right? By the body of Christ. And of course, he's got all kinds of ways he can go from there. Um, Maximus's emphasis later, he also does that. He meditates on each of those aspects. But one of the things he keeps emphasizing... And, and of course, you can see where the salience of the various cultural elements sort of comes, comes to the fore uh, 
in in the seeing and the interpreting and the working it through is that the garments of Christ are, as he says, like the sensible logi or principles of the cosmos. And also the body of Christ are the intelligible principles or logi, according to which and upon which the, the cosmos has been created. And so there's the act of unification between what you might say this extremely unique spatio-temporal event as it's presented. Now, now, just the way he gave that question, some of you already have a sense of, I want to hear more in this video. And some of you are like, I don't understand what's going on in this video and it doesn't seem to impact me because I just want to know that Jesus is God and he shone like a light bulb even if I can't figure out why like Elijah and Moses also shined but that's that's the thing and so what I really want to have is a degree of vindication and validation in terms of my commitment to Christianity and my commitment to my certain element of Christianity and so on and so forth presented in Matthew 17 and the entirety of all history and all events and all even down to the principles of sensible intelligible cosmos which we similarly perceive all the times to various degrees and that the that standing at the center of all of it history cosmos particular event universal eventuation itself is a person you know who who, who himself wears everything about him and you can speak and meditate about him but who is because he's the unifying principle of all of them, you can never specifically speak him. Only about him, only around him. So that which unifies is, you know, I think maybe John will like this <laughs> Platinian point. That, that which unifies is also that which uh, cannot be itself unified in the act of perception or, or in intellection. It's, it's the thing by which you, you unify. Now, now, again, I mean, if you sit down and kind of slow that down and sort of process it, you're going to find some really good stuff. But and pay attention. You got four people in the room here. And, you know, I, I, when I first listened to that, I'm like, I really can't wait to hear what John's going to say to this. Well, why? Well, because, well, let's, Let's let's imagine that, you know, you have this story of Muhammad glowing or Buddha glowing or um, Joseph Smith glowing or, you know, all of all of this kind of you, you have religious pluralism and 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 deeply within this transfiguration are the claims, the unique claims that Christianity makes um, and Christianity asserts that. Christianity makes these claims because Jesus made these claims, which is a rather remarkable thing for someone to do if they are supposed to be humble and truthful and all those kinds of things. You know, Point Lewis made quite a bit. So here it's Christ, I think, at least in Maximus' handling of the transfiguration. So that's I'm just emphasizing person as this sort of synthetic dynamism, which is bringing together many different dimensions. That's That's how I would approach it perhaps and and where he goes there in terms of person will become the launching off point for a lot of very interesting conversation in this video about persons and i think it's really important conversation especially for me because when i get to my sort of pascalian spirit of finesse and spirit of geometry you can't do geometry on persons 
persons are not subject to geometry. Um, persons have to be approached with finesse because I think finesse has within it the sort of transjective quality that I think John quite rightly notes is, is absolutely essential to our productive engagement of the world as seen here in, in Greg's, um, let's see if I can get this into the other browser. Then I don't have to necessarily. Well, maybe that into maybe that works pretty well into Greg's um, Greg schema. I, <laughs> I just thought, oh boy, Nate, what 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 have you done here, Nate? Um, is 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 all of the progress we made in this little corner gonna come crashing down because you asked a kind of a, a, a would-be modernist fundamentalist question, which you didn't intend along those lines in any case, but here we go. You're muted, John. Just FYI. Thanks. No problem. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to try and speak here as, as I've been introduced as a cognitive scientist. Uh, I'll, I'll probably be uh, the odd person out. That's a very, that's a very Jordan Peterson. I'm going to speak psychologically about this text. So John, John's taking a page from Jordan. But hopefully, it'll say stuff that's relevant. I think the way that the this image, and that's what it is, is being taken up is exactly what it is. It's exemplifying how it is being taken up. It is imaginally augmenting your perception and conception. You're seeing through it by means of it and beyond it, beyond it. And I think that's what kind of event it is. That's exactly what kind of event it is. And that explains the weird transjective nature. They sort of recognize Elijah and Moses, but they've never seen them before. Like what's going on there? Yet at the same time, it's not there. They're giving indication that it's not, you know, just in their head. But Peter's, I, let's build them tents, is obviously sort of ridiculous. <laughs> and it's it's portrayed that way so treating it objectively is also sort of being uh, uh you know uh put put down it's this different kind i think it's a it's a transjective imaginally augmented right perception and conception and that's what all of you i hear you doing with it um and i think it's exemplifying exactly how it is being taken up um now where i would differ is um i see other other instances of this kind of thing. Before I practiced Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. While I was practicing Zen, mountains weren't mountains and rivers weren't rivers. And when I was done practicing Zen, mountains... And, you know, you can say this for Peugeot, you know, anybody who's into the symbolic world, suddenly Jesus goes up to a mountain and, and sort of in modernist uh, historicist terms, the, the question would be, well, that's just telling us geography. And, of course, Jonathan Peugeot would say, no, that's not telling us geography. Jesus is going up. He's getting closer to los cielos, to the heavens. And um, and then, you know, you're going to have his right hand and his left hand. And so suddenly, and, and that's that's where, where John's imaginal sort of comes in, that the, again, maybe I'll pull up Greg's, Greg's nice little diagram here. I did a little bit of quick editing because I revealed the email. <laughs> so you're still safe. But this um again, all of all of these elements come into the the properties of seeing. And 
you know that that doesn't even get into the, the questions of of reporting mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers while i was practicing zen mountains weren't mountains and rivers weren't rivers and when i was done practicing zen mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers and you can hear the difference because all of the cosmos is now in the mountain and the rivers where mm -hmm. before they were just mountain and rivers but that doesn't mean they have gone they've stopped being mountains and rivers you're now seeing them in a transfigured fashion in a profound way um and so uh, or, you know, Blake's to see the world in a grain of sand, or or Spinoza's scanty intuitiva, where you see each thing. You see God in everything and each and everything in God. And that's not a, that's not a, a conjecture. That's a realization. So now, now he's obviously cited non-Christian examples here because he's going to make a point about pluralism, because this is, of course, one of the, hmm, what, what what does it mean that God opens the heavens? Has has God done this for others? Have others made the claims that Jesus has made? So I'm interested in. Uh, I, I'm interested in this, and my I said from the beginning, but my approach is scientific. I want to see is there a general thing going on here, and can it reveal something about a general capacity? Because the question was, and and again, the, a general thing and a general capacity because. That's the scientific question. And, and this is, again, part of the question between history and science, because as Lewis makes the point, history is just one string of unique things from start to finish. It's a question of knowing. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I'm not trying to be tendacious here. I mean, it's if, and I'm not trying to deny something here either, but I'm trying to walk very carefully. I hope you'll 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 accept it that, right? The degree to which something is miraculous is the degree to which I wonder if the word knowing should be applied to it. And so I'm bracketing whether or not there might be something theologically miraculous going on. If that means, mm -hmm. you know, you know, sort of enlightenment style supernatural or something like that. I'm trying to get at is there something really profound going on here, and do, do I see it elsewhere? the capacity for transfiguration and can we understand that as indicating a certain capacity for knowing and i think one of the things i mean this is a lot of the work i'm doing on the cognitive science of ritual right now i think uh, there's good evidence increasingly so uh for imaginally augmented perception and conception the imaginal as different from the imaginary and that this can lead to this kind of enhancement of participatory knowing uh, and so john's being very careful here and um i think i think we've got enough goodwill in this little corner that we can you know understand the care and respect it and because he's being very careful he says I, i'm not i'm not and he's even even offered that little comment about the miraculous because there's there's a whole nother aspect of this with respect to the scientific uh, which I think does align with a lot of what um, uh, Jordan was saying. Sorry, I, I keep skipping on Jordan because I've been, I've, there's been so many Jordans I've been talking to. <laughs> right? Sorry, yeah. I'm late to the party. <laughs> no, it's not your fault. It's, your fault. it's, just, it's weird coincidence. Um, now, it is weird. I, 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 I know that's not, ex you know, I'm not playing in exactly the same arena, but I, I, I'm here um, to try and... Um, answer the question as deeply and as honestly as I can um, in a way that at least provides for dialogue. So I see, I, I, I see this as pointing to the kind of knowing um, 
in which there's imaginally augmented uh, perspectival and participatory knowing that brings about a potential transformation in humans, a human being's sense of identity, uh, both their identity in themselves and their identity in the world. Um, that's would be my that would be my answer. Now, I really want to. I know some people are going to sort of jump on that, but I think if you listen to what he said, he said, well, again, you might question about the imaginal because is, does that mean it wasn't really there? And now we're back into this this crux, this conundrum that the modernist fundamentalist um, feud has put us on. But the what he said at the last point was, again, that the, you know, this transfiguration where Jesus invites Peter, James, and John up to the mountain is designed for the transformation of Peter, James, and John and the transformation of those who will later read the text. That's what the text is for. That's what the text is about. And if you take what Jordan Wood said, about, you know, about this, you know, pulling this all, in sense, pulling it sort of together. Um, you know, Sam's, you know, can't really forget Sam's point that, well, Jesus wasn't the only one shining. Um, but but you're, you're, you're there intended to see a unity. You're intended to see a reality. And the point of that realization is, in fact, transformation. Now, in my experience, Christians are um, overplay their hand with this against, in fact, even the biblical testimony because it's not that this knowing Jesus at the transfiguration is going to somehow miraculously change Peter, James, and John. Peter is still going to deny Jesus three times. John is going to be at the cross, possibly because of his young age, and he wasn't perceived as a threat by Roman soldiers or temple guards. James will, of course, be the first apostle martyred. And so, I really love the question that Nate led off here with. Very subtle, very tricky. What sort of knowing is this? And, and what is this knowing for? Now, again by virtue of the modernist fundamentalist fight, this sort of becomes a football in terms of, well, this is this is how we know Jesus is God. Okay. Um, you're going to have the voice of God coming in. Maybe I should just pull up the text. So here you've got the, the transfiguration. You've got it in all three versions here that I put before you. I'll read Mark first because... Uh, Jesus took along Peter and James and John and led them to a high mountain by themselves alone. And he was transfigured before them and his clothing became radiant, extremely white, like no cloth refiner on, on earth can make so white. And Elijah appeared to them together with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to the Lord, Rabbi, it is good that we are here and let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's nail you down to the world. For he did not know what he should answer, because they were terrified. A cloud came, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly they looked around, and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. 
And as he was coming down the mountain, he ordered them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen, except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept these matters to themselves, discussing what this rising from the dead <laughs> meant. Uh, Matthew, after six days, Jesus took along Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, taking, uh, talking with him. No report of what they were talking about. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's some questions I'd love answered. So Peter's answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. And if you want, I will make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice from the cloud. Of course, this is a theophany. This is the, the um, you know, you can, you can connect this up with the cloud on Sinai. You connect this up with the cloud over the tabernacle. This is my beloved son whom I am well, um, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell down on their face and were extremely frightened. And Jesus came and touched them. Get up and do not be afraid. And when they lifted up, and when they lifted up to their, their eyes, they saw no one except him, Jesus alone. And as they came down the mountain, Jesus said to them, Tell no one of this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And Luke, oh shucks. Now it happened at, um, at about eight days after these words, he took Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Notice that um, that is unique in Luke. As he was praying, the appearance of his face, and again, there's Luke tends to have, Luke will often portray Jesus in, in some ways an accessible way. It's emphasized in Luke often that um, the power of the Holy Spirit with Jesus, and this then, when you get into Acts, you have the apostles acting, you know, by the Holy Spirit in similar ways to Jesus, and so those emphases often come up in Luke. And behold, two men were talking with him, whom were Moses and... What version do I have this thing set in? Oh, the Lexham English Bible. Oh, that's, that's fine. Now Peter and those who were with him were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, again, you've, you've got different... That, that, will, that, will, that will garner plenty of conversation too. And they saw his glory, and two men were standing with them. And it happened that they were going away from him. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And you can, you know, was that because they're going away from him that Peter now, you know, let's, let's, let's nail it down. Let's make it concrete. Let's have it stay. Let's have it not go away. Let's, let's fix it in space time so it can be accessible to others. You know, who knows what was going on in Peter's mind, but all three all three versions report it. And while he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid, and they entered into the cloud, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And after the cloud had occurred, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything that they had seen. And then there'll be a... Um, And I think it's interesting that, um, just if I, if I may, um, it's interesting that the way that, say, like Maximus handles this text would really be consonant with what you're saying, John, because yes. he, 
because he he immediately says in fact this is an insight not simply into an event like a, a miraculous unique event. and in fact somehow it's revealing the very structure of everything yeah yeah right so so why 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 contemplate the principles of the universe according to which sensible and intelligible have made and somehow they're being what's being revealed are the principles the the, the logos himself is the person mm. who in him as as he says in another text he says he brought along with him all of the natural logi, the principles of all the world, right? Mm. And so, again, even, even the very distinction between a particular event and the universal event, you might say, uh, of eventuation itself, the possibility of event itself, is already, it's interesting to me that Maximus already wants to, you know, in that tradition, wants to go that direction as well. Like, far from this being a an exclusive attestation to the unique miraculous or of aura or glory revealed here, mm. as if it's a mere exception to everything else, which is more or less banal. Uh, he, he somehow sees this as the very, fa- the heart of everything, mm. always, everywhere, right? So just- now, now, I know that sounds very theoretical for people. Because again, the salience of the modernist fundamentalist fight in the minds of many, many people, there is, it's very interesting, in this collective spirit that we sort of participate, there's sort of a collective defensiveness along certain lines that, okay, well, we want, let's make sure that this is this, this is a historical event that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were really there and Peter really said those words and the cloud said that word and, well, fair enough in the context of this fight, but the connection to, you know, what, what Jordan just said here with respect to what Maximus was getting to, that that's also, in fact, part of the defensiveness and the desire of disciples of Jesus to see this as vindication and validation of the larger claims of Christ. And of course, in some ways, that sort of puts also Sam perhaps on the defensive, although the particularities of Sam's Christology are you know are, are interesting as as the rev as the resolution goes up so just agreeing with you i think from that perspective yeah i have been reading your book and i'm uh, <laughs> i'm interested in this in this argument in general and i have been doing making my way through uh the ambigua and actually not just reading them but doing lexio divina on it to try and get um the perspective uh, from which it is being generated and not just grasp the propositions. So um, I, I'm really looking forward to opening this up. I'm just wondering if, like not not to diminish Maximus's metaphysical point, because I think the point you just made is a really important one. But I mean, isn't this in one sense the, the, the framework um, that is presupposed as being active at least in principle, in every ritual, that the ritual is not a unique event, even though it might be super salient and in a special space and place, but it should open, it should transfer and open up all of reality in a profound way. And I think, and, and I think ritual knowing, I don't think it's another P by the way, but I think ritual knowing um, uh, discloses that very, very powerfully. Um, um, and, and again, I'm wondering, what that means i mean well and, and i want to again note that even even the defensiveness on the part of christians commonly on the other side of the fundamentalist modernist debate about this which makes certain elements of this super salient 
is an expression of, I think, a deep implicit assumption that, well, someone who identifies as a Christian and even the motivation of defensiveness that they have is in that way an assertion of a metaphysical claim and a metaphysical, the assertion of a, of really a metaphysical worldview. And, and this, this, this goes deep and it's something that I think about a lot when I'm preparing sermons because obviously the job of a pastor is to try to provoke and shepherd and inspire in my church and I suppose in some ways in the community of people who pay attention to me is to is to provoke something that is unbelievably difficult to really nail down and articulate. So I've, I've been working on my sermon on the second sermon on the Sermon on the Mount and this year I'm doing something which might be finally unworkable or unwieldy which is there's really the prologue, which I dealt with last week, the aporic Beatitudes, and then this week is sort of the main body of the text, which I'm using righteousness, a la Dallas Willard, The Divine Conspiracy. Righteousness is a way into, as an interpretive key for understanding the Sermon on the Mount. Now, righteousness not simply being a moral or behavioral quality that is exhibited in people, but in a much deeper way, what Dallas Willard asserts is actually behind Socrates and Plato's The Republic, which is righteousness, and those of you who are watching my Sunday school class know, righteousness is the thing, again, the thing, oh gosh, righteousness is that which differentiates the good cop from the corrupt cop, that which differentiates um, the Sadiq the righteous person from the fool or the mocker or the sinner, okay? And, and, and what happens is Jesus' preoccupation in the Sermon on the Mount is he wants to lead people into righteousness. Well, what does that mean? He wants to, he wants to lead them into becoming this, this transformation, becoming Becoming a sadiq, that would be the, the Hebrew word, of course. Becoming a righteous person. What happens, uh, sorry, and this isn't like, this isn't trying to pin anybody. We're trying to cooperate here. Okay. And, and, and see what John is, I mean, what, what's been lurking behind this is in fact, even in a group like this, the modernist fundamentalist fight. Because I don't want to pin anybody. Well, what, what would you pin somebody? Well, well, well Nate almost kind of does it at first, and he, he, he'll reference it a little bit later. If you watch the whole video, you can see kind of where Nate goes. I don't know if I'll bring that into this conversation or not. But because, again, as, as modern materialists, it in terms of our regard for Jesus, at, at least one layer within us, it makes a difference whether or not we can say, well, I think that, these three disciples went up with Jesus and they saw, saw Jesus shine. Now, they didn't break out into shine, Jesus, shine. But, um, you know, because you have, you have to ask the question, well, how, how on earth do we regard Jesus and what's the evidence? And now we feel like we're falling down the YouTube rabbit hole into atheist, um, 
atheist-theist debates. Get a take a look. <laughs> it's okay. No, I got no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. I just, I don't want to do that. So for me, I, I wrestle around the particularism, universalism issue. Mm -hmm. First, like you do, epistemically, metaphysically, but of course, it also bumps us up against the pluralism argument in general, uh, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I'm wondering, like, uh, I mean, I wrestle with it epistemically, but I, I imagine that the three of you have have uh, have to wrestle with it more profoundly, um, and um, I'm wondering, I want to hear how that shows up, because um, mm -hmm. let's let. Jordan, maybe I'll ask you. And this and, is and so you know, basically, then I really love it because John sort of names the elephant in the room, the elephant that Nate just sort of put in the room, and maybe you know, knowingly that well, we we do have the fundamentalist modernist debate in the back, and behind all the miraculous claims of Jesus and the and the and the recordings and and the sayings of the Gospels is this line that well. Someone who can bring his disciples up onto the mountain and summon Elijah and Moses is not your regular bloke off the street. And and then what does that mean? What does that mean about the claims of Christ, et cetera, et cetera? But again, in a room like this, you've got a fair amount of diversity. You've got you've got Nate and his his Anglican um, his Anglican faith. You've got Jordan, who is now worshiping with the Roman Catholics. You've got Sam, who's this biblical Unitarian, and we've got John, who's a non-theist, and these are the kinds of conversations I come to this little corner for. And, you know, we're, we're tiptoeing into them because we don't want to sort of trigger atheist, theist YouTube. But the issues are out there. And, 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 and these are the kinds of reasons you stayed up late in your dorm room, at least at a Christian college. Um, or maybe at a non-Christian college or at an intervarsity room. And these are the kinds of conversations that you want to have because sort of just getting stuck of at did it or didn't it happen is insufficient. And it's insufficient on both sides. That's a point I want to make. Because given all the history that has happened, I, 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 I can totally understand and sympathize with, with people for whom there's deep skepticism about the historicity of a reporting like this. But I think going deeper into it helps us understand why the skepticism emerged. And part of it is sort of perennial and pervasive. Thomas expresses skepticism when the other re disciples report, we've seen Jesus. <laughs> yeah, well, huh. until seeing is believing and I, you know, do the touching here, I ain't buying it. So there's a pervasive, perennial skepticism with respect to miracles because miracle by definition is unusual. But there are also, we've also got pauses because, hmm, if I do see a miracle, what will that mean for my life? And, and I often find that that is overblown because... I have known many people who have seen miracles, or at least at one point in their life they've attested to seeing miracles and participating in them, and then later threw their faith away. And this is the point that I made that Peter, James, and John don't walk down the mountain and are suddenly themselves transfigured. Peter's going to go on to deny Christ. Peter, James, and John will remain as sinners. And there'll be all kinds of stumbling that goes along. 
You know, the, one of the pivotal moments in transformation, of course, is in the book of Acts. And we do see a transformation, but that doesn't mean that Peter, James, John, Paul, any of these other heroes of faith will now suddenly be exactly like Jesus. They will become more similar to Jesus, but not exactly like Jesus. So, yeah, this is the kind of conversation I come here for. And exciting. Is it an open question? Again, I'm not trying to do semantic martial arts, right? <laughs> right. Given what you just said on behalf of Maximus, and I, I agree that that's what he's saying, at least as far as I can understand him. You're an authority, I'm not. But, right, how does that, how does that bump up against, you know, I think it's fair to say there's been a long-standing tradition as regarding this as an exclusive event that you know demonstrates uh, the exclusive, the exclusivity and the supremacy of Christianity or something like that. Well, look, here's yeah. Jesus. He's like here's the greatest of the prophets. He's superseding them. Only this, like, I mean, I'm not. I think I don't think and, and God speaks, right? This is yeah. my beloved son. That, yes, exactly. That's an instance yeah, right. of uniqueness. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I'm, I'm putting it before you. There's yeah. obviously a tradition that does what I've been saying, and Sam, thank, thank for that. Sam has been, you know, you've got that, and then you've got what you've just said, and mm. and, and I think you're being sincere when you say you're agreeing with me and that Maximus. Like, how do you? Do you understand the question? How does how does that how does that sit with you? How do you how do you wrestle with that tension? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. It's certainly at the heart, I think, of I would think not only my own wrestling, but perhaps now. Again, this is what I come to this little corner for. This was not a Nate's gonna Nate's gonna hit John with this question, and we're gonna make him a we're gonna make him a Christian right here on YouTube. John asked the question, and he asked it in good faith. And and the other, you know, those who go to church and those who have Christian professions can now weigh in and and share their, their faith and their struggles and their doubts. We can come to the table and we can compare notes. And 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 you know, there's a there's a lot of brain power around this little quartet here, and a lot of learning. And um, this is this is this is why I come here. This is this is what gets me excited. Perhaps, in a, well, certainly in a in a way that is particular to my biography, which John, I've been listening to. I actually only heard about you through I think Nate and, and, and some other fellow travelers. Uh, it was like two months ago, so I've been doing my best while uh, being a stay-at-home dad and doing dishes to have you blaring in the background. Uh, so, which you you have you have uh it transfigures you, you, the experience yeah, i was gonna say i was, to I was gonna to, say to john in the background it was gonna say he's made dishes super salient to me so uh, so, uh so he actually, does the same I, for my redaction <laughs> so i so first uh uh uh, uh yeah a word of thanks about that but um yeah so no um i uh i love listening to you know, all of the stuff you're doing, the dialogues you're doing, and then this community is doing, because this, to me, it does seem to me the question you're raising is at the heart of kind of a lot of this. I mean, yeah. the, the very idea of dialogos seems to be that um, it's a recognition implicitly, at least, if not even sometimes explicitly, that yes, we all have our own perspectives. You can't avoid the particularity of your own perspectival approach to yes. existence. 
Um, so we're not we're not doing that move or it's like, well, somehow we can have access to something which is a perspectivalist or, or without perspective. And yet at the same time, you know, um, you, you, it's it's a sort of a inherent conundrum or if not just a straight contradiction to say, I know for a fact that that my perspective or everyone's perspective is simply that a simple a simple perspective, yeah. because that would be an absolute statement on perspectives. Um, one way, so this is, uh, so I can only just speak for myself. I, I think that there is something like the, a, a provisional necessity. So just say from, from the, the Chris, Christian perspective, I'm Catholic right now. I'm mostly sustained though, however, spiritually and intellectually through the Eastern Christian sources. There's something uh, initially important or provisional necessity of seeing a uniqueness at all. Like in a certain way, every religion, every great philosophical tradition has to recognize salience, right? Has to, in relevance at the same time, which is inherently bound up with a peculiarity or a particularity or like, what about Socrates? Like yeah. there's something, there's something about him, right? And in, in your yeah. first episode I just listened to recently was great about that and about the spirit. And is he really locked in history? Can we be after him? Yeah. Right. In, in a different sense, a deeper sense. In fact, so much of what you said about the spirit of Socrates really reminded of uh, of the way that uh, an influence on me in the Catholic world, Hans Ruth von Balthasar, You're right. uh, the way he reads texts and in Germanistics in the 19th century, 20th century, that was actually even, that was thematized, that idea of looking for the spirit, not only in the, in the folk, which obviously can go badly, but <laughs> in the texts, right? And in the, uh, and in the, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, another um, a luminary in history who's otherwise uh, barred off from you. Okay, um, I know a whole bunch of you we just lost. Um, I'm sorry about that. I hope we didn't lose you for good to this video that you just clicked away because it was like, I don't know what he's saying. I don't know what he's talking about. Particularity. All of our perspectives are, of course, particular. And we don't own our perspectives. There was a video, shoot, I, I watched it. Can't got to me, got to me from Twitter. It was a it was a it was somebody who does some of this atheist, anti-theist YouTube, and he was sort of um, swatting away the Christian assertion that um, God holds back so that we can make our mind up. And it was really good video. I really, I really enjoyed it. I wonder, boy, I don't know if I'd be able to find, I bet you I can find it. I think I put it on my blog. Leading church blog for the win. That's, it, it's, you know, if I, if I remember to archive things, I can find them. I want to talk about it, try and keep the sarcasm down whilst doing so. It's one of those subjects. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so let's crack on with this one today. This was a tweet that I got on Twitter. I mean, obviously, I got it on Twitter. That's where you hear tweets. And um, I want to talk. About, I want to talk about it. Try and keep the sarcasm down whilst doing so. It's one of those subjects. It'd be easy to descend into a to a, a bottomless pit of sarcasm. But this is a an, an, a Christian argument that I've heard a number of times before concerning free will and evidence. Just let me say before I read it out that this is not a common Christian argument. I think most Christians would object to it. Some of them would have the, exactly the same objections that I'm going to give you now 
and some more besides okay so just bear that in mind but it is one that i've heard a number of times and the reason i wanted to discuss it is because it just shows the lengths that people will go to to try and stitch together a belief they want to hold with what they actually perceive of the world out there and to try and desperately hold those two together uh, in some kind of some kind of workable tension and this is the lengths that they will go to and basically it's this now, now again even even just the way and, and I believe he's he's operating good good faith here um, but but just want to just want to demonstrate the arena of that statement that um, on one hand people don't get like getting kicked in their axioms people will people will look for arguments to defend their worldview because of course sort of you know similar to the point that Maximus made that that Jordan and John you know pointed to these these stories are not just particulars they are of a whole. And part of what happens for people if, and this is part of what happened with the modernist fundamentalist, you sort of take away some of the underpinnings of the story and you lose the story and other things begin to cave in as well. This idea that the reason that God doesn't give us decent evidence for his existence, overwhelming evidence for his existence that would make everybody believe in him, is that they want to help preserve our free will. Right, in some ways this would take away our choice and that's the last thing that God would ever want to do. God is all about choice, he's all about free will, he's all about not coercing us into what we believe. Okay, so this is what they wrote. Now, of, co and of course here, God is, is, is definitely agentic. You know, I don't know, I haven't listened to enough, to, you know, sort of the super thing in the sky. Uh, God is one more particular within a universe of particulars. Um, you know, this gets into the, the point that Bishop Barron made to, made to cosmic skeptic on unbelievable, uh, the point that um, uh, Brett um, Sockold made. I mean, this is long-standing Christian theism. And if you want to see a video I made about this, you can see my video about John Verveke's non-theism and its relationships, let's say, to classical theism. Um, and, you know, lots of other words come flying out ground of being um you can think about the 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 video that i pointed to with with sevilla and karen talking so this is this is sort of a his he's, he's building on his sort of youtube definition of god from the atheist christian fights this particular instantiation of this argument, if you like, this particular wording, if God gave us absolute truth that he is the real one, then we would have no choice in the matter. In other words, God wants us to choose him over the fake gods, obviously, but he doesn't want to make the choice too obvious. Okay, so I think the idea absolute truth means a kind of incontrovertible piece of evidence that other than willful bloody-mindedness, right, there would be no rational way that you could ignore it. You'd need to say, well, okay, fair enough, yeah, that shows that God exists and this is the God. He doesn't want... And, and of course, in the context of the transfiguration, uh, this does not function as such. The transfiguration is insufficient or the baptism, let's assume Peter, James, and John were there at the baptism of Jesus and the clouds parted and a dove came down, etc., etc. We got a lot of that in the Gospels. That was insufficient. Walking on water was insufficient. In fact, nearly everything that can be demonstrated to a human being is insufficient, but we have this question, what, what, what does it take? What does it take for, for human beings to sort of 
switch camps. And in fact, once they switch camps, what then is what then is the nature of transformation and the style of transformation and where does it all go and what does it all lead to? Let's play a little bit more of this. I really enjoyed this video. I want to do that because to do that would effectively to take away our free will. I don't want to get too bogged down in the weeds of what free will is, really. I think, for me, free will's a little bit like a face in the clouds. We can see something that we can discuss from way back, but if you start looking at it too closely, not only can you not find it anymore, but you don't even know really what it was that you were trying to describe in the first place. It all just kind of disappears into virtually just the sort of the, the, the water vapor of the cloud. You're grasping around trying to even find something to describe. But I think when we stand afar, we generally talk about free will in terms of sentient agents such as ourselves not being coerced, not having a gun to our head. We're making a decision based on, well, hope. And, and one can add that, let's say someone does put a gun to your head. Well, what in fact are they coercing? Are they coercing your will? Well, yes, sort of. Are they con conversing your beliefs? Are they coercing your belief system? And in a sense, because our belief systems are not actually volitional, and good thing for that, can walk across the street in front of a truck and say, I really believe there isn't a truck there. Wham. So it's for that reason that our beliefs are not simply subject to our volition or our will. I assume based on the evidence and arriving at our choice. For me, really all there is when you make a choice is the evidence and some randomness factor. I don't know what there is besides that. I personally and and I think well this this goes so the whole question of will goes so many different directions you can pull in C.S. Lewis's um, miracles you can talk about the whole show you can talk about you know Sam Harris you can talk about a whole bunch of things but again let's say the sort of experiential phenomenal impact of the will and of course everything that goes into the formation and the molding of our will. I personally don't like the idea of promoting the randomness factor above anything else. Seemingly, this seems to be a different viewpoint. Allow me to plot a graph for you. Just a bit of fun, this. Just a bit of fun, that's all it is. But this is how I envisage, uh, envision this argument that's being made here. If we plot the evidence on, on the x-axis, folks, okay. So in the middle point there, we've got a balance of evidence for something, against something. Let's say God existing, God not existing. At the right-hand end there, that's incontrovertible evidence that nobody could reasonably uh, uh, deny that God exists. And then at the other end there, you've got evidence, incontrovertible evidence that a particular God doesn't exist, let us say. And I think what they're saying here is effectively free will is diminished at these ends, right? If you have that kind of overwhelming evidence, then your free will has been vacuumed, hoovered out of the system. And so the, the, the sort of the, the corollary of that is that your free will would be maximized in the middle where the evidence is at the greatest tension. The problem there is, the real red flag, is that you can replace the y-axis from free will with guesswork and you have exactly the same graph. That's a bit of a red flag to me, right? If free will is nothing more than guesswork, then it's trash, right? I expect it to mean more than that. I see free will as a non-coerced decision and a decision based on evidence. If it's just a decision based on... And, and again... I don't think people make decisions that way at all. I think they, they certainly, evidence certainly comes into a factor. But again, when we bring in 
Greg. Let's see if do I still have it. There it is. When we bring in Greg's argument, suddenly you, you begin to recognize that the world you're living in already has will built into what we're seeing. And when you throw in the fact that I think Lewis is right, that even let's say let's say to one degree or another, if you're living emerged within a Christian worldview, the fundamental question is not so much whether we believe something exists or doesn't exist as if God were sort of the table in the room in this picture, but how, in fact, we would wish to respond to that God. And, and that's, in many ways, what's, what's sort of behind this, this entire conversation. Now, I, I, I liked... I, I thought this was a, a fun video, and um, so I yeah go ahead and go ahead and check it out. I, I liked his manner. I liked um, you know he, again he seemed to be um, seemed to be doing it in good faith, but but this whole idea well, yeah my oh yeah by the way my Jordan Peter no, Jordan Peterson Exodus Seminar and rewilding of Christianity back on YouTube folks um, pretty cool. But, but it gets into the, the much deeper question that I'm always wrestling with, which is, okay, where does this all go and what does this all mean? And, and, and when and where and how is the payout? And, and, and I've, got, I've got a lot more to say about that than I'm going to possibly get into this video. But I, I quickly messaged Esther because I remembered or Esther uh, Bethel. She's... I trained myself to always say Esther so I wouldn't give away her name, and now it's stuck in me. I told this story before. I once did a wedding, a second wedding for a guy, and I had done his first wedding to his first wife. And I'll tell you, I worked mightily to make sure that, because to make sure that I always said the, the correct name of his new wife and not the <laughs> name of the first wife, because in my mind, those two are so deeply connected. Anyway, but, but this, this gets into this, this question of belief and acting. Part of what's interesting, again, about how Tom Holland's work sort of scrambles the definition of Christian. How, how are we to sort of categorize each other? And, of course, uh, Justin's very much in the space of well, um, Douglas Murray, what would it take to become a Christian? He, in fact, names the video clip this. That's the question I'd love to ask you at this point, Douglas, as, as we start to draw things to a close. What, what would it take for you personally to kind of make that journey back to see the tide come in again? Um, is it just a really long chat with Esther where she convinces you of the reliability of the Gospels or is, is there a bit more to it? I'd, I think I'd need to hear a voice. <laughs> What kind? I, I, and, and and Justin sort of chuckles because oh was that a joke? And Douglas is like ah uh, no it's not a joke. Voice oh literally a voice from oh, yes, beyond. I mean it literally. Okay. Um, by the way, I'm very interested in the absence of this sort of discussion within the religious discussion. Mm. I was having a, a very interesting late night argument the other week at Oxford University uh, after a talk I was doing there and. Uh, um, I, I don't think I'm breaking any confidences, but uh, um, we, we got arguing about religion in the early hours after you know, a couple of pints of 
Negroni. And um, I said there to some religious uh, people I was arguing with, um, have any of you ever heard voices and or had a vision? Mm. And I was very struck by the fact that the, 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 the main thing happened was that one of them immediately flipped, said, I know exactly what you're trying to do. <laughs> you're trying to make us fall into that trap. And then you're going to dismiss this whole thing and declare victory and we'll... <laughs> and the reason I mentioned this uh, is because I said, actually, that is exactly the opposite of... What Hence the need for, for good faith conversations where we have built up a relationship with one another where we can have the confidence that in, in some ways we're all sitting around a table together and no, my my stories of miracles I I fully understand are not necessarily going to lead you back to church or to adopt a particular package of Christian discipleship or ethic or profession. And I, I totally get it. But isn't it much more fun to sit across the table as people who enjoy each other's company and respect one another and can tell our stories, even with the hope of, of, of sharing with someone else the, um, the, the thing that we have found and are excited about? I mean, that's, 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 that's what we're doing what I was doing. I was inviting you to do the thing that will make you unexhaust yourself most swiftly. And I, I said to them, I actually, I've known two people in my life who claim to have had e an actual experience of God like that. Not a, I've had feelings of, you know, or sometimes I feel X, but uh, uh, one, both of them are dead, one who um, uh, uh, believe she heard the voice of God and uh, it wasn't a maniac by any means mm. uh, um, was a very devout man throughout his life um, uh, and uh, the other was a, a friend who became a priest on the basis of a um, a, um, a vision right. uh, basically when he was a, a young man and I just mention this because as I mentioned it to these people at Oxford the other week because it strikes me so vividly that that uh, i mean I, I would urge people not to fake it needless to say. <laughs> but but it strikes me that that's not in the mix at all in what people are discussing about western christianity um i have traveled in quite widely in the middle east africa and elsewhere and noticed that the um uh, for instance the churches in africa what i've just described isn't isn't common but it wouldn't be thought to be completely mad if you said it sure yeah. whereas and i just i just i mention this just because i'm i'm interested in the absence of that and when i say that as i say I, I assume that religious people will think i'm trying to lead them into some trap i'm not i'm saying that is and has historically been right. uh one of the ways in which okay. uh, the christian religion has has thrived so by instant um uh, visions yeah i, I mean esther Douglas is looking for some kind of experience and, and says maybe we should expect a bit more of it. I'm saying that the bar <laughs> is that high. The bar is that high. Okay, fair enough. What's your response to that, Esther? And of course, some of us might say, that's not really such a high bar. <laughs> I'm not trying to dismiss it, but 
as he said, many places in the world, many churches, I mean, you can have an experience, but again, I'm back into the group that I, I don't know that that experience is ne necessarily going to do for you what you want, because let's, let's not just look at Peter, James, and John, let's look at Judas. How many of Jesus' miracles wasn't Judas there to see? And Judas, in the end, I, my personal theory about Judas is that um, he followed Jesus, thinking that Jesus was going to be a certain kind of Messiah. You have the mind, you have the culture, you have the material, you have the you have you have all of this stuff. He thought that Jesus was going to be a certain kind of Messiah, and he was not. And so, well, this and. You know, again, if you read the story about even Jesus' adversaries who are at least implicitly acknowledging that Jesus has been doing miraculous things all up and down. And if we can take a look at the testimony of the Gospels that Jesus did miracles before thousands, even tens of thousands of people who were duly impressed by it, how many people just went back home and said, wow, that was quite a show. Um, let's see, let's maybe have him do bread. And maybe if he does bread, you know, there's that story of Midas where he touches things. I mean, how about not stones into bread, but stones into gold? How about a little alchemy here, Jesus? So none of this is, is quite as simple as we might imagine, but to get back to, oh, to some of the, some of the differences of, Chrome versus Edge. Edge nicely puts all of your different windows into your different windows so that you can kind of cycle through them, which is sort of nice. So, so on one hand, a miracle like this, like, like John and Jordan said via Maximus, sort of puts the whole world together. And Christians experience that when they, they have the miracle and there's a transformation and they say, I'll never be the same. And that miracle just takes them and changes them, and their whole life long, they are different. And then other people see the same miracle, let's say Judas versus Peter, because they're a nice comparison in the Gospels. Judas sees the same miracles as, maybe he missed a few, he didn't get up in the mountain with the big three. But Judas sees Jesus walking on water. Judas sees Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Judas sees Jesus raise the widow of name. Judas sees Jesus go into a town and heal everyone who had illnesses and came to him. Judas sees all of it. And yet Judas, at least at one point in time, and this is again part of our human difficulty, what I believe in this moment right now on the 26th of November, no November, of January at 2.15 in the afternoon, I might feel very doubtful about tomorrow. That's, that's, that's how we are. And, and yet these, these miracle moments can be, like the transfiguration can be, well, now suddenly the, the, the law and the prophets and, and the God of the universe and Jesus right now and and, and let's build shacks and nail this sucker down. Don't, don't let Moses and Elijah go. We've got questions. Moses, Moses, um, yeah. How many questions wouldn't we have for Moses and Elijah? 
what a strange thing reality is. And I don't say that to afford skepticism because the, the, the reality is so complex that, in fact, even the simple can live in it. And the brilliant and well-read and tremendously articulate can wonder about it. It's, it's that sort of thing. Lewis points that out in Miracles, a number of places where, you know, there's a reality to an apple that is so basic and accessible that even a horse can make his way to it. And there's a complexity to an apple that even this complex chart by Greg Enriquez um, can't exhaust. So again, for me, the fun of this little corner is doing this kind of thing and doing the other kinds of things too. And, you know, maybe say Douglas Murray, well, if, if, cause I, I, I have a friend in the UK who is, he was raised by a non-Christian home. He was dating the woman that was now his wife. She was a Christian. He wasn't. That was becoming increasingly an issue in their relationship as they got closer and closer. And he had an experience where God showed up. I, I, I've talked to again. These are these are stories people's ha people have that because of the pervasive cultural rela reality they will not express. And, you know, now we're in a far broader arena. We've got people on psychedelics who have testimonies, and we've got people from all kinds of other religious traditions that have testimonies. And so, yeah, it all comes together here. But, again, to have, to create a space and have a community where I don't have to play games, I don't have to... You know, I can be transparent with all of me. I can bring in the cognitive science, can bring in the history of biblical interpretation, can bring in the different religious and philosophical communities that we come from to come to a table and talk. And again, to me, the heart of this little corner is not so much just watching videos of people doing it, but us get to do it ourselves with each other. I got a couple of Randos conversations in the can now, and um, one of them's with a CRC minister who, you know, he's part of John's LSNAP, but, you know, he, he came at this very much like me, and he said, I've always wanted to have, be able to have these conversations with people off the street. I think this is, I think this is potentially effective evangelism. But if anything, it's 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 just winsomely honest, and it's messy. I, I'm not going to doubt. I'm not going to deny that. But um, yeah, this is this is why we're here. This is why we're here. Anyway, uh, should land the plane on this video. Got another interesting conversation this afternoon. So leave a comment. Let me know what you think.